More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Welcome to today's edition of the Rush Limbaugh Show podcast. It is an honor to be here to celebrate our friend Rush Limbaugh. And today is the day the Lord has made, and uh, this is the week that God called due alone of talent that he placed into a man named Rush Hudson Limbaugh III. And Rush has left this stage, uh, but he has not left us. And you're going to have an opportunity to hear a whole lot of Rush today. And in fact, EIB is not going anywhere, not for a long time. Uh, There's still going to be lots of opportunities to hear what Rush said to us. (laughs) How could there not be, given the archive given the museum of broadcasting excellence. And Rush was so many things to us. I'm just a fellow listener like you. And frankly, if I hadn't have paid attention to Rush's instructions and life advice, and you're going to hear a lot of that today, maybe not as much politics, in fact, not. A lot of life advice from a man who, uh, who was that, just that overnight success, right? And he wasn't. He worked so hard to build this program that means so much to us. He was he was the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-caring Maharashi. And he was America's anchorman and truth detector. And he was also a brother and an uncle and a son and a grandson. And he was a teacher. He taught us a lot of lessons. And he was a recipient of a lot of great lessons from his family. I think of his Beloved family and how Rush would share the wisdom and the love that they communicated to him. And he inspired us. He challenged us. He said things like most of the limitations that we put on ourselves are artificial. They're self-invented from thin air. And when Rush shared with us that his cancer was was terminal, (laughs) do you remember what he said? 
He said that he'd already exceeded his expiration date. Even then, he was having fun with us. And even then, he was playing with language. And Rush also decided on this program that he'd so carefully crafted over the years with a team who's been up all night. Just, I want you to know, the team EIB has been up all night going through and choosing some of the audio you're going to hear today, and there's still audio pouring in. You can imagine the number of people who have things to tell us about our rush. And as he shared that news with us, the terminal nature of his cancer, I I had the uh, incredible honor to fill in for him the day before uh, Christmas Eve. And it was a remarkable thing to hear from you. I don't know that I really believed it. I don't know that you did. The shows that Rush did, sick and ill with advanced lung cancer, if you've not done this sort of performance, this sort of radio, it is a tax on the nervous system. It is a tax on um, the energy systems and the excellence. I challenge people to listen back to back to a healthy rush and a rush who is ill and tell the difference. That took such incredible courage and it took amazing strength. And so much of life, Rush's life, took strength. And he gave it to us. He chose to do something that for years I think he'd avoided on the program. That He chose to share his faith in God and his, his faith in Christ. And he chose to communicate that to us because I think he wanted us to know. I think he wanted us to know. And he put it in the Limbaugh letter. God was walking with him. I think he needed us to know that. His wife. Just a portrait and bravery yesterday. I hope you heard that. When Mark and and Ken and I and Brent and others fill in for Rush, I I think I'll probably speak for everybody to let you know that we know we stand in in shoes that can't be filled. And yet EIB will continue for the foreseeable future because there's so much to share about Rush. (laughs) In listening to the program all these years and to listening to Rush interact with callers, Did you ever have the sense that Rush ever considered himself above us? I don't think I've ever mentioned this on the show before, but I was a caller to Rush's show twice, and both times I felt well-respected, even though the first time I tried to get on, Bo wouldn't let me on. (laughs) It's probably right not to. I never heard him treat a caller with anything less than respect. When the program began... And it was going to go national. And people believed in Rush at that level. He could have listened to the 5% of voices. If he'd listened to 5% of the people who told him it can't be done, it wouldn't be here. And he refused to listen to these voices. And this is one of the greatest lessons that I think Rush ever taught all of us was he said, and I will approximate what he said because I remember listening to it. Never listen to people who couldn't tell you you can't. 
Never listen to people who say that you, because you chose to seek education in a different path, that you can't then go do specific things in life because you did not go the, the approved of route through education. Rush's father lived to see part of the fruition of this. And, and, and Rush had shared with us that he felt he had disappointed his father by not going into the family trade of law and, and professions. And, and yet if he, from this microphone and from this program, he explained law in ways that grew up in us an understanding of the uniqueness of what American exceptionalism means. And the American exceptionalism that Rush recognized and that he taught now generations of people that will, will, you'll hear Rush talk about his Paul Revere books. He took it upon his shoulders um, in the latter part of his career to give back to young people something that's been stolen from them. That is the real nature of American exceptionalism that Rush lived. And he took advantage of the right to life and took advantage of this unabashedly and liberty and rush had the liberty to not follow in the family profession and thank god that his father had the opportunity to see the fruition of that in pursuit of happiness um he knew early last year as he shared with us that uh, he had this cancer and again I'll, I'll challenge you. Go find a moment in the last year where Rush wasn't sharing with us pursuit of happiness. There were plenty of times that Rush was frustrated. Sometimes he was frustrated with with us and our, our the, the pushback that he wasn't seeing on some things. And we won't get political today. Today is about Rush, the teacher. Rush, the man who communicated love and challenges to us. And Rush, the man who loved music so much. And I challenge you, even when there were the very heavy days after the election and, and when we were all feeling anger and frustration, how many times did you hear Rush come back from a commercial break and he was having fun? I remember the story he told of hearing someone on the radio and saying, they're having fun. And I don't want to be trapped in school and sitting behind a desk. I I want to have fun. I want to do radio because it sounds fun. And his he he had this device. He shared this story with us that allowed him to do radio shows in his home. And his mother was downstairs listening. And if there's someone in talk radio who tells you that Rush didn't pave the way, they're lying. They're just lying. Or they're bitter. And lying. That was a difference maker, I think, was the optimism. <laughs> you don't live a year past what someone in a medical profession said. This is your expiration date. You don't tell Rush Limbaugh his expiration date. God told him. God told him. It was the optimism, you guys. That's what sustained the show, I think. And as I uh, worked with the team last night, just going through what you're going to hear today, optimism just shines, just shines. And in fact, speaking of that optimism, it was shared with a lot of people more important than I. And here's some giants 
who are giants in their own right, who want to share their thoughts about the greatest radio host in history, Rush Hudson Limbaugh III. He was the GOAT, the greatest of all time, no question. Mm-hmm. Elvis invented rock and roll, and Rush invented talk radio. He did for radio what Arnold Palmer did for golf. The Johnny Carson of radio. The Tom Brady of talk radio. The Babe Ruth of radio. I'd even take it a step further. He was Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Hank Aaron, Derek Jeter, and everyone in between. He's in the category of a Reagan, of a Bill Buckley, of a Milton Friedman. There was Reagan, there was Rush, there was Scalia, Justice Thomas, Buckley. He was our Will Rogers. He is a legend. There aren't too many legends around, but he is a legend, and he was the king. Yeah. And today... We talk about Rush Limbaugh, the man. Did I mention he loved music? You'll hear about it next on the Rush Limbaugh program. It's like waking up. You do it every day if you're blessed. And each day, I was blessed to have him talking to me, saying the things that I was thinking. Uh, We're remembering our friends and the greatest broadcaster in history, Rush Limbaugh. You hear that? Hear that music? Here's another thing that broadcasters will tell you is if they paid attention, Rush used what used to be called transition music just to transition between the segments. He featured it because he loved it. And if you ever watched the Ditto Cam, uh, (laughs) it wasn't unusual (laughs) to see Rush grooving to that like music. And greatness knows greatness. It does, and, and that's you. You it will have heard Rush talk about great people in in every field, um, and his admiration for them and their work and 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 how they got there, and and greatness is okay recognizing greatness because they know it doesn't diminish them, and 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 Rush did that. He shared that with us, and incidentally, I I just want you to know it's okay to cry. I I think some of us are doing that right now. It's okay. We're, we are recognizing our friend, and, and those of us, people who've never met Rush, felt a friendship to him. I've, I've spoken to you on the phones, and I can sense that from you. So here is Rush Limbaugh showing just how much he loved music and how much his huge brain knew about the legends of music. Aretha. Ladies and gentlemen, I was 67 respects. I was 16. I was just starting to work in radio. When Aretha Franklin bopped on the scene, I was telling Snurdly, everybody's calling her the Queen of Soul. And th- th- there's no doubt she was. I think that is that doesn't go nearly far enough in describing Aretha Franklin and who she was and what she did, talents and so she was She was soul, there was no question. She defined it. Well, she and James Brown was a godfather of soul. James Brown was the ambassador of soul. He wasn't just the ambassador. He was a, a godfather. He was the ambassador. In fact, James Brown and one of his wives, they were traveling through Georgia one night, and they were speeding, and a trooper pulled them over. And James Brown's wife said, you can't arrest him. He's the ambassador of soul. He's got diplomatic immunity. It's a true story. They arrested him. Well, he was the godfather of soul. But Aretha... I mean, Barbara Streisand was envious of Aretha Franklin's voice. Everybody in music was. Her talent, her abilities, the the range of music she could sing. 
There's something else you need to we we I think need to remember and, and kind of remain in awe of Aretha Franklin. Uh, after having moved there, was from Detroit. There's a little neighborhood in Detroit that an entrepreneur turned into one of the most powerful, one of the most identifiable, one of the most amazing music industry stories there has ever been. His name was Barry Gordy, and he did Motown, and there were two houses. If you ever go to Detroit, you got to drive by these two houses. That was Motown, where the recording studios were. In fact, the Motown artists thought that one of them was better than the other. And it, as time went on, some of the acts only wanted to record in one of those studios because they felt that the sound was just better there, acoustics and everything else. But stop and think of it. You had the Four Tops. You had Gladys Knight and the Pips. You had you had the Supremes. You had Smokey Robinson. You had Diana Ross. You had, later on, the Jackson 5, uh, Marvin Gaye. Uh the Marvelettes, uh, glad, uh, uh, no, 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 what was it, the City Council of Detroit, uh, uh, yeah, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, all in one neighborhood in Detroit, and that's where Aretha was. She didn't go with Motown. She went with Atlantic. She was uh, she was wooed by the great Atlantic executive Ahmet Ertigan. And he signed her to Atlantic, and Gordy had all these other people. Just amazing. In in one neighborhood of Detroit, what came out of there and what to this day still defines American R&B or soul, however you want to describe it. Those Motown hits are still played by everybody. Millennials love them as much as we did when we were kids. Although the early Motown stuff in the 60s, you really need to hear it compressed you don't want to hear it on a CD. You need to hear it the way it was mastered and mixed for AM radio back in those days so that it could be heard when you're driving around your Ford Mustang convertible with the top down or 57 Chevy or what have you. But it's just amazing. And that's 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 where Aretha Franklin came from is she stood above. It's hard to say, but she stood above all of it. Um, I, I'm just it, – it is a quintessential – uh, American story, Aretha Franklin, and the impact she had, the reach that she had, the talent, and so forth. So, yeah, she was the queen of soul, but to me, I mean, everywhere you turn in the media, queen of soul, Aretha, it seems not enough. It's, it's like right-wing talk show host Rush Limbaugh. Just, it's not enough. It doesn't get anywhere near describing what I do, does it? Conservative talk show host Rush Limbaugh. Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin. She was, yeah, she was that, but she was uh, she was much, much more. And Rush was a thinker. And he was a man of greatness, unafraid to recognize greatness, unafraid to break with formatics. Uh, look, I've never been a program director, but I've known plenty. And... The conventional wisdom and maybe the worst thing to do was to ever try to convince Rush with conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom is you're a, you're a conservative talk show host. What are you doing talking about Aretha Franklin? What are you doing talking about Motown? What are you doing hanging out life advice? You need to be always on the same topic. But Rush had this huge mind. 
And it couldn't be contained with just one topic or one topic matter. It just was too big. And we're the better for it. And Rush was also a man who taught life lessons. And you're going to hear some as we continue to recognize and celebrate our friend, Rush Limbaugh. More than just a guy on the radio. A friend. A really good friend. It's Todd Herman just remembering that friend, Rush Limbaugh. And maybe you were like this as well, that when... There was a break from politics, and, and Rush would have an opportunity to talk with a young person about uh, how to achieve success. I found myself always turning the radio up, and it's probably because, um, like a lot of us, Rush achieved his knowledge uh, without without going to college. And the incredible, what they call on the West Coast bandwidth, that is intelligence of this man. I mean, it's look at the family. His brother David's a great author in his own right, great thinker. His family has this history. Rush availed himself of another aspect of American exceptionalism, which is the widely available information. But he also understood something that I think is so vital, that, that information is only potential power. It, it is not power. It is potential. It's a fuel. It has to be lit with action. And, and often that action requires the, the, the striking of a spark with really, really hard work, like traveling the country weeks at a time when the program launched, to meet with affiliates and advertisers and with us. And he did that. So my email box is filled with people telling me how Rush changed their lives for the better, just as he changed mine. And, of course, we've all heard calls like this, where Rush helped people chart their course. Independence, Missouri, up next. This is Mark. It's great to be with you, sir. Hello. Hey, thanks, Rush. Merry Christmas. Uh, An open-line Monday question for you, not directly related to Democrat madness. Uh, great talk to those young people, even if it was only eight minutes. A lot of great advice on the greatness of the country. Do you have any advice for them and maybe all of us on success? I remember a couple of years back you said very few in the radio business ask you about being a success in that business. I was astounded. I proudly ask you for advice for success, not necessarily in the radio business, but in life and in taking advantage of our great country uh, as this year approaches. And I'm sure many young people would like to hear your advice as well. Okay, um, I'll I'll give this a shot. Uh, I I have said over the years that uh, there haven't been, by comparison, remember when I was uh, a young teenager. Well, I I, I want to do radio since I was eight. So when I would run into anybody who was in it, I just asked them question after question after question. I asked so many questions. One guy said, "You know, it sounds to me like you're more interested in how to do it than actually doing it." And I said, "What do you mean?" Well, at some point, you got to stop asking questions and start doing things. And I said, well, I'm not old enough to start doing things. I'm not old enough to get hired yet. Well, yes, you are if you really want to. But you, at some point, you got to stop asking and, and you got to start doing. I mean, you, you, can't, you can't learn everything about doing something just by asking about it, which I, I knew. Uh, it, was, it was still some, some relevant uh, advice, probably from somebody who was tired of all my questions. But I have noticed... Uh, that I've gotten much less of that than I sought myself. And, you know, I ask people in TV because it interests me. I'll, I'll talk to, to veterans at Fox. How many of these young people that you've hired have come to you and sought your advice about how to advance or how to do television, how to do what they're trying to do? It's amazing the number of people who say none. They all show up thinking they know everything. 
If, if they've been hired, they think they know everything and they don't, they don't need any advice. That's just a casual observation. Not, I don't mean anything substantive by it. I think it's just cultural differences. I, I think um, and if there's one thing about successful people that they all have in common is that they love it. Whatever it is, it's their passion. It's their number one passion. It's the thing they love the most. Unfortunately, for a lot of people, the thing they love the most is their hobby, something they don't get paid for. But the next thing to do is to realize that you live in a place with boundless opportunity. Don't listen to the noise. Don't listen to the pessimists. Do not seek advice from people who failed at what you want to do because they're everywhere and they don't want to be alone. Can't tell you the number of people who tried to talk me out of it. Rush, it's vicious. It'll eat you up and spit you out. The chances are so slim. It's just a road to misery. And I decided after a while not to listen to those people. And then I decided after a while not to even talk to them. I was only going to find people who had succeeded and try to learn from them. Now then there are basics. Uh, I don't care what it is that you want to do. You have to have a well-rounded knowledge and more importantly, the ability to demonstrate that you have it. You have to be able to, this is not just broadcasting or radio. You have to be able to communicate what you know. You have to do things that are going to inspire confidence in yourself. You have to really like yourself to be confident. And it is confidence that will open up opportunity to you. It is confidence that will allow you to transmit what you know in ways that are persuasive and and impressive. Talent on loan from God. More like uh, a gift from God. It's just weird. I just thought he'd be there every day. And I feel ashamed of myself for taking advantage of him because I thought he was going to be there every day. When you listen to Rush, it's more than just hearing Rush. It's feeling him, feeling his presence, his humor, feeling his genuine love for us all, feeling his genuine love for each and every one of us, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. He just wanted what was best. I'm just picturing Rush right now meeting all sorts of interesting people in heaven and having great conversations. Rush was just talking with a caller, Mark, from Independence, Missouri, and had achieved success, and this is one of thousands of life lessons taught, according to our modeling and EIB, to 80 million Americans a week. And here's the rest of that conversation. If you ever have a chance to have a conversation with President Trump, you know what he talks about a lot? He talks about people who are great at what they do, the best at what they do. I don't care what it is. He loves talking about people like that. When people ask me... um, advice on success. You know, the problem with advice is that it can be limiting rather than expansive. And so that's why I try to keep it generic. I, I, I appreciate the question. I appreciate the um, presumption that I know what to advise. 
in success. I'll give you an example why this is a bit um, of a challenge. If if you, let's say, wanted to be in radio, let, let's say that you wanted to do your own talk show and you went to anybody in broadcasting that could make a decision to hire you or not. And you tell them that you want to do a talk show. No one, even today, would advise you to do what I do. And yet, this is a pretty successful venture. And nobody would tell you to do it. When I started, the wizards of smart and the powers that be in radio tried to talk me out of doing what I do. They said, you can't do a show without guests. And you have to take calls, and it has to be about local things. And I, because I didn't want other people to be the reason my show had an audience. I was explaining over the weekend to people, somebody was saying, you know, you, I've never heard a show like yours. I said, the only reason you say that is because mine's the only one where there aren't any guests. Yeah, that's right. Why is that? And I said, from a strict business standpoint, why should I invest I've got an hour here, three hours. Why should I give any of that time regularly and as a routine to people who are not nearly as invested in the success of this show as I am? And why should I give a portion of this program every day to people that are already everywhere else in the media? There's nobody out there that I can get that's not everywhere else. And there's nothing I can get them to say that they haven't said anywhere else. So why? Why do what everybody else does? Well, because there's a formula. Well, there you know, there was. If talk radio shows had a formula. Guests were paramount. Issues being local was another thing that was paramount. Um, taking calls was uh, paramount. And how you behaved with calls. And some, some people wanted insult hosts. Some people didn't. But I just said, why should I join the free? Why? I, I, it happened at a juncture, too, where I thought I had one last chance to make this work. So I wanted to find out. See, I knew. So I wanted to demonstrate that I could be the reason people listen. Not some endless parade of guests who don't care about whether this show succeeds or not. They're only here to you know, hype a book or a movie or whatever. And they're already everywhere else. So, even, But even to this day, if, if you walked into a radio station and wanted to do a talk show, nobody would tell you to do it like I do. That's not a criticism. The, the point is, don't, don't be constrained by norms. Let your passion dictate what you want to do. And, and, and be brave. And don't listen to negatives. And another thing, whatever you do, do not get distracted and absorbed over things not under your control. It's just a waste of time. It is a psychologically destructive thing to do, to try to get involved in things that you can't control. You have enough Challenges trying to deal with those things that you can uh, control. 
But I just I, – I really do think that wanting it is 80 percent of it, all things being equal. You're educated. You're able to speak. And I mean in anything. You don't begin every sentence with, so, um, hey, what time is it? So let me look at my watch. It's, oh, what time is it? It's uh, 2.12. Just learn to speak what you think. Don't be afraid to say what you think. And be passionate about what it is. And if, if there's no money in it, find a way to make money at it. Create the revenue stream if you can. It's not universally true for everybody. But there's no substitute for desire. One of the greatest tight ends in football today, a guy named George Kittle, number 85, San Francisco 49ers. He has a philosophy. He's the hottest tight end in football now. He believes that once you get to the NFL, the talent is so pretty equal that the difference in success and failure in the NFL is mental. Focus. Confidence. Weeding out all distractions. Don't get hung up on things you can't control. So George Kittle, the night before every game, goes solo and alone for three hours mentally focusing on the game the next day, putting himself in circumstances that he foresees. Third down situations, team winning, team losing. Time left on the clock. He tries to arrange things so that whatever that happens in the game is not a surprise, that he's mentally prepared for it because he's already studied it, Focused on it. The weather, if it's raining, if it's going to be cold as hell, it's all metal. And he's, when talking about the National Football League and the talent level, he's, he's right. I mean, the number of players quality qualified to play in the NFL is so few compared to whole population that by the time you get there, the, the differences in talent from position to position, are, they're not much. There's not a whole lot of drop-off until you get to third string. And even then... You're still talking about people that are infinitely more qualified than the rest of the population. So the difference for him is entirely mental focus. Now, there's some givens in this. I mean, physical ability, he's got it. Don't have to work at that. He has to make sure he keeps it, but he has to work out and all that. But it's not something that he has to worry about. He's tall enough. He weighs enough. He's strong enough. He has to work at all that stuff. But those are not – everybody in the league does that. But not everybody has the same mental toughness, the same focus, the same ability to overcome adversity. And he thinks that's the difference in winning and losing in championships in the National Football League. Well, you can apply that to anything in life that you want to do. And probably it's not an easy thing to do to sit around by yourself for three hours a night and try to imagine every circumstance that you could face the next day so that when it happens, you're not surprised by it. Some people would advise against doing this because all you're going to do is paralyze yourself. Game day comes, you're going to be waiting for those things to happen rather than having the ability to react to what does happen. But it works. It works for him.
And so therein is the last piece of advice. Don't think there's only one way to do anything because there isn't. There are countless ways. And even now, depending on what it is you want to do, there are countless ways to do what you want to do that may not have been done before or may not be done very often or frequently. And remember that the pressure on everybody is to conform. Conformity creates the least amount of problems for bosses and managers. Nonconformity, that's a problem. I am a nonconformist. That's why I would never succeed in any corporate structure. Some people are made for it, though. This is the... There's no right or wrong about whatever it is you want to do. Just find it. That's half of it, if not more. And how you find it is being honest with yourself about what you love and what your passions are. And what you want to be. Some people, that's, what do I want people to think of me? Other people, what do I want to do? Whatever it is that motivates you. I've often found that one of the worst things you can do, though, is to get even with people you think wronged you in the past. I'm going to succeed at this just so those people will see they were wrong. Fine, let it motivate you a while, but don't let let be why you're doing what you're doing, because they'll never acknowledge it anyway. You'll never get the satisfaction you seek. We're going to continue to celebrate the life of the greatest broadcaster in history, Rush Hudson Limbaugh III. We're hardly even getting started. There's so much for you to hear, including words about Rush's faith, as uh, Ansley Earhart's going to explain, as told to her by Rush's niece, Kristen. Uh, We'll hear from President Trump and a lot more words from the Maha himself, even as he is now in heaven and... We miss our friend. We'll continue. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose Podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, this idea of what, do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. 
Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. It is and always has been an honor to sit in for Rush. And in a way, we're still doing that. Rush would be here if he could. And I start my radio show at KTTH in Seattle by saying, today is the day the Lord has made. And these are the times in which God has asked us to live. And it was this week where God Almighty uh, tapped Rush on the shoulder. And he said, it's time to come home. And with Rush went the talent that God had loaned him. But uh, Rush saw fit to leave an archive in a, in a broadcast museum. And it's at RushLimbaugh.com. And it's available to all of us. And EIB is going to continue for the foreseeable future. There's so much, so much Rush shared with us uh, that we will have the opportunity to share with you. And that will continue at this, uh, at this day part. This time of day, so we were used to listening. Um, you can know a person by their friends, and you can know a person by their enemies, and, and you can look back on a person's track record. And you can look at some things that are not commonly looked at with Russia's program. How many small businesses became large businesses because they spent the money to have Rush endorse them after Rush investigated their companies? And came to the point where he could say, I will put my name on this. I will use these products or I will put my name on this. And there's a ton of them. And I, and I bet you you could create a list of hundreds. The people who surround this program, I've gotten to know them through the years. And they're with us today. And I've said their names before. And Susan and, and Paul. And Mike Mamone, you've heard his name on the air, broadcast engineer, uh, and Allie, <clears throat> Craig, Brian, Keith, Crash, a bunch of people put the show together. Um, the New York Times is apparently of the mind that one such partner, Bo Snurdly, does, does not exist, someone that Rush made up. Well, a lot of pictures with the made-up guy. And the New York Times has also decided to see fit that that uh, James has uh, attempted to grade his role. I'll tell you something. It wasn't, wasn't in our outline today. Rush loved this team. How do I know? Because of the 32 years. Because of the longevity. Notice something. When Rush passed away was called to God. It was his wife who announced it on this program. Nothing leaked. No one ran to sell the story. Because there's a family here. There's a family. So that sense you had that as you listen to the program, something really special was going on all these years. You're right. 
I got to believe that that flowed from something in Rush because he had enough power in this business that he could change staff every year. He, he could have done what he wanted to do, and, and, he, and guess what? He did. He rewarded the loyalty of these people. And every single day that the program goes on, when myself or Mark Stein or Ken Matthews hosts, hosted for Rush, it was always about delivering you value. And there's tens of thousands of people who... Tie our success to Rush in what we heard last hour was <clears throat> Rush. Pardon me. This is so hard, you guys. Tie our success <clears throat> to listening <clears throat> to what Rush said <clears throat> about not being a cog, <clears throat> about not being just a puzzle piece of zagging as others zig. Had he not done that, there's probably tens of thousands of people who'd have a lesser income because he chose not to conform. And and, and this is what has so frustrated the Mockingbird media about Rush is that he wouldn't conform. He never sought their approval. And so today, typical of this, as as our friend has passed on, you have Joy Reid attacking Bo Snurdly, saying that he was just a human shield for Russia's opinions about Obamacare. Um, I know Bo Snurdly. He has his own views. And it happens that many of them, maybe most of them, lined up with Russia's. And that really frustrates people like Joy Reid. I believe the treatment of this team came from a place in a huge heart. I want you to hear something here. This is Ansley or Ainsley Earhart. And she's telling us about Russ's faith as she heard it told by Russ's niece, Kristen. His niece is a good friend of mine, and she works here with us, and she's in my Bible study. I always tell that family, Kristen, I would love to meet your grandparents, because Rush is such a stellar individual and just fought for freedom and fought for conservatism in our country. David has written so many books. He has a deep love for Jesus, and his daughter, Kristen, is an amazing person. And I asked Kristen yesterday, I said, what would you like me to say about Rush? She said he never missed a Christmas with our family. All of Kristen's siblings, sisters and brothers, were like Rush's children. He would fly to Cape Girardeau, where they grew up, to go see Kristen in her high school plays. She said that he showed up for his family in a grandiose and generous way and didn't just throw money at us, but in ways he really put his heart into our family because he was so generous. She said her sister loved video production, so he would always buy her the best equipment. One time, Kristen was going home to Cape Girardeau for her, her wedding shower, and there were a lot of problems with the flights, and Rush sent his plane there so that she could come back and not be uh, 
so upset about almost missing missing that that was his gift to her and yeah. um, she said when he was diagnosed they texted a lot and she said if you mention anything this morning please talk about his faith it was the core of who he was and everything that he believed he wasn't vocal about it but he had a deep relationship with Jesus she sent Romans 8:28 to him and we know that God works all things for the good of those who love him when he was diagnosed and Rush wrote her back and said I believe that to the T it's not that everything that happens is good but he knew with all of his heart that God is good. God is good. I will tell you something I've never said on the air. And this is fully about Rush. I got to do the show in New York with his team, the team that's with us today. And we got on the topic of Gold Star dads, Gold Star families. And a gentleman called. Oh, okay, guys, this is going to be really hard. He called because they had found in their son's effects, he was a gold star dad. They'd found in their son's effects, his son was, was killed in, in, on, on duty. I believe he's in Iraq. A collection of cigars. <laughs> too expensive for their son to afford. And in too nice of a box. And so his father became very curious. And he looked into the box, and there was a note, a handwritten note from Rush. Because Rush chose to communicate with him and to take care of him. And it said in the note, this is my private number. If you need to reach me, if you need anything, you can, you can use this, and please do. And I asked that gentleman to say his son's name, his full, son's full name and, and uh, job title on the air, and he did. And then, as I was just wrapping up this phone call, Allie, who's with us today, often screens calls. Allie, I don't know if you remember this, but she said, don't let him hang up. Do not let him hang up. Whatever you do, Todd, do not let that man hang up. Rush wants to be able to get in touch with him. See, that man had seen on the Rush 24-7 cam, Rush TV, he had seen a flag. He had sent Rush in thanks for the cigars, his son's flag, behind our Rush's head. Someday, the stories of, of this heart will hopefully be told. None other. Then President Donald Trump spoke for the first time since he left office and talked about the last time he spoke with Rush. Three or four days ago, I'd call him just to find out, you know, his, his fight was very, very courageous. And he was very, very sick. And, you know, from diagnosis on, it was just something that was not going to be beaten. But you wouldn't know it. And he is married to an incredible woman, Catherine, who really, every time I spoke to him, he, he would tell me how great she was. She took such great care. He was very brave. I mean, he, in theory, could have been gone four months ago, really. He just, he was fighting till the very end. He was a fighter. And just a great gentleman. He was a unique guy. And he was a, he became a friend of mine. You know, I didn't know Rush at all. I had essentially never met Rush. And then when we came down the escalator, he liked my rather controversial speech. I made that speech that was a little bit on the controversial side and he loved it. And he was, without ever having met him or talked to him or, you know, had lunch with him or asked him, 
he was with me right from the beginning, and he liked what I said, and he agreed with what I said, and he was just a great gentleman, great, great man. And I bet you, you get a chance to talk to Team AIB, you'll hear the same thing. Rush has so much more to share with us. You will hear Rush Limbaugh's voice next as we continue to celebrate our friend on the EIB Network. I'm going to miss his voice, his presence every day on the radio. And EIB will continue for the foreseeable future. We'll continue to share Rush's voice as we do hear, as Rush reminds us, never listen to a person who didn't achieve something when they say you cannot do it. This is Rush Limbaugh speaking of you relying on yourself to be your best. You're going to have people above you wherever you work. Some of them are going to just be mean, incompetent, insecure people. Others are going to be great. And, you know, we have choices in this country. You can either accept a situation, try to make the most of it, and say, okay, I have to stay here. My family's here. I can't pack up and move in this club. Who knows where I can find a job? Or you can say, you know, I'm not, putting, I'm not going to put up with this. I'm not going to be disrespected like this. And I, I, if I'm better than the people I work for, then I'm going to go get a job where I can use all my talents. It just It's an attitudinal thing. If you're going to sit around and accept the attitude that you're always going to be an employee and you're always going to have a boss and you're always going to have to eat the excrement sandwich, or do you someday want to be a boss? Do you someday want to be independent and free of that? And we live in a country where people can make that choice each and every day. But that's why I've always said <clears throat> that most of the limitations that people have are self-imposed. Most of the limitations we have are not because somebody won't let us do something. It's because we don't want to do what it takes to do something else, or we, we can't move, uh, or we or whatever. But, but most of the limitations that people place on themselves are self-imposed, or have, or self-imposed. And so a union is not, is not the solution to any of this. A union is not, not the correction. But I, please don't misunderstand. I have absolute total support for each and every employee in this country where they're unionized or not. Because, see, I want a successful country defined in a lot of ways. I want a moral country, and I want a prosperous country, and I want a country with all kinds of future for everybody who has yet to be conceived and born. And this requires the people who are alive today also want the same things and have the ability, by virtue of how they live their lives and govern themselves, to create the same set of circumstances we were all fortunate enough to be born into. And this, this is why cultural moral decay is a great, great, great concern. It's not because uh, there are some of us who disapprove personally and we won't. won't it's because of the overall effect over time. Long, long after I'm dead, what's going to happen to this country with this moral rot, with this silly notion that you, 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 kids are so fragile that you can't tell them the truth about the economy or that you have to drag them in and show them a propaganda movie by Al Gore and then bring their parents in and threaten the parents. If you don't come watch it, your parents' grade will suffer. Well, now we've got some of the silliest economic notions that uh, the, the people of this country voted for. And we just, we sit around and we hope and pray that they overreach. And I'm convinced they will. I'm convinced the Obama people are going to vastly overreach. And that if, if he, if he, if he puts this $850 billion stimulus package or billion dollar, trillion dollar, whatever it is, year and a half from now, folks, you're going to see approval numbers for Barack Obama. They're going to stun you and him and everybody else. 
and here come the midterms. But what's going to happen in 210 is going to depend totally on whether or not the Republican Party's grown a set and has the audacity to actually present an alternative rather than watered-down sameness. So understand here, Faith, I love you, and I understand garbage that your husband goes through. I've gone through it, and so has everybody else. It's part and parcel of going to work every day in this country. We've all had reprobates and idiots that we work for. We've all also had great people that we end up working with. If you're lucky, you end up great people you're working with and working for. But you have to, those people aren't going to find you You have to be out there working and finding them. So please don't misunderstand. We support the workers. I I have respect, love, admiration for everybody in this country who gets up and goes to work every day. I don't care where and what they're doing. It's the people who don't work, who have entitlements, expectations, who can but don't. You know, that's, that's that's a whole different thing. I have no sympathy for sob stories. Because we've all had them. If we all, we could all cry every day about something. We could all go through the day. (laughs) Welcome to life. The more you get, the more you're able to get in control of your own life and your own future, the happier you're going to be. If you structure life, your life, so that you're always waiting for the next explosion to hit, if you're always waiting for the next creep to pop up, it's going to happen. You can be a person of action or you can sit around and wait and hope. And remember, hope, outside the biblical, don't get confused here, hope is simply an excuse for doing nothing. It's rush, tough love. And loving the workers, do you remember what we talked about? The longevity of this team? Don't tell me Bo Snerdley's a made-up person. Don't tell me his opinion didn't matter to Rush Limbaugh. Uh, Mark Stein, Ken Matthews, and those of us who've been fortunate enough to get to fill in for the greatest broadcaster of all the time, all the time, we've seen the work. We've seen the teamwork. It's not an accident. These are people Rush worked with because he chose to. Because when you've achieved the success that he had... You could have anybody, and he had the people he wanted. And everybody starts somewhere. Now, there were people, even on the night where Rush Limbaugh was inducted into the Broadcasters Hall of Fame, where he got to meet Paul Harvey, another legend in radio, that a broadcaster there thought that she would hurt him. Take that occasion where he was being inducted into the Hall of Fame. A woman who herself got paid to express opinions thought she would hurt El Rushbo. She gave it her best shot. And you're going to hear Rush tell you that story as we continue to honor our friend, Rush Limbaugh. When he shares a story, it's as if he's telling me that story. One-on-one. Just he and I. Intellectually, I know there are millions of others listening and hearing that same story. But he was talking to me. Just me. When Rush talked about having talent on loan from God, later on, he told us that had taken on a new meeting to him. 
And he also told us, we all have talents on loan from God. And he shared an incredible philosophy with us, his philosophy. Most of the limits we put on ourselves, we invent out of thin air. Our next caller was on hold for two hours last Friday. We didn't get to him, so we asked if we'd call him back. Is this Stephen from Murray, Utah? Stephen, I have about thirty seconds here. Hi, Rush. I'm just kidding. I'm gonna. We're gonna get you started here, but I'm gonna hold you during the break, and we'll continue after the break. But you're calling. About, you read a book by Steve Young, the four hundred quarterback, right? That's true, and I made a connection between his story and a quote of yours, where you talk about most of the reasons people say they can't do something or reasons they've made up. Uh, Would you like me to? Yeah, yeah. That that, that my my belief that most of the limitations people have or face are self imposed. Did Steve Young write that? And he wrote that in his book. Uh, No, no, it's not in the book. But in the book, he talks about becoming an NFL quarterback. He said it was a great opportunity in my life. It was also one of the most challenging things I've ever done. So, you're reading Steve Young's book. And the challenges he faced coming up reminded him of the quote you heard me say well, about... No, no, not quite, Rush. It reminded me of your quote. Uh, it reminded me of your quote where you said, most of the reasons people think they can't do something are reasons they've invented. Right. Everything you do in life is up to you. Part of life is realizing you have much more potential and ability than you'd ever know. But it's up to you to face the fears and unleash that which really drives you. Now, as I read this book by Steve Young... His path to the NFL wasn't easy. At BYU, he was number eight on the team depth chart. And he said, well, I could have thrown a pity party and just given up and gone home, or I could have chosen to have a positive perspective on life and let my play prove people wrong. People told Steve Young he'd never make it as a left-handed quarterback, that his accuracy wasn't there. Well, he worked on his accuracy, and... I mean, look at the way his career turned out uh, in the Hall of Fame and his Super Bowl ring. So um, that just reminded me of that quote from you. And I've noticed that quote to be true in my own life. You see, I was born premature, and I have some challenges. And I use um, this quote of yours in some college essays or during some lectures in journalism classes. And... My professors were pretty impressed, and I've noticed that quote of yours to be true in my own life. So I wanted to thank you for that. Well, well. I appreciate that. I really do. I, 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 I love having things come back like this because that's, uh, it's always great to have affirmation like that. You know, the, speaking of Steve Young, I mean, he's, he's overcome a lot. There's no question. And, he had, and he's achieved a lot. But I think one of the things, he probably would admit this if, if, if he were here, um, and I think people in the sports media, people who follow NFL are pretty much aware of this. But he was second string to Joe Montana for a number of years. That's like being second string to Babe Ruth. It doesn't matter who's next. There's no way they can measure up. I mean, Joe Montana was was mythologically huge. In fact, Joe Montana, that was one name. I mean, Joe Montana was such a big deal in San Francisco. It wasn't Joe Montana. It was Joe Montana. He just owned everything. And Young was on the bench. I can remember, I was at a game, the uh, 49ers and the New Orleans Saints at the Superdome, and Montana was hurt. 
and Young was the starting quarterback. And it was it was not yet his job because Montana was going to come back and reclaim the job, but soon thereafter would be traded or released and go to the Kansas City Chiefs. But during the pregame, Joe Montana was granting interviews on the sideline to anybody that had a camera. Even though he wasn't playing, he was a bigger deal than Steve Young, who was going to be starting that day. Now, I don't know. I know Steve Young. I, I've got to, I got to know Steve Young during my stint at the pre-politicized days of ESPN on the Sunday NFL pregame show. Uh, and I've only met Montana once. But, folks, the reason that I have all these things about such philosophies is the only limitations we have in life for the most of them are the ones we place on ourselves. When you get to the rarefied air that people like Montana and Steve Young and other NFL quarterbacks are breathing, you can't believe the competitive, the cutthroat, competitive nature of things. And make no mistake, and this is not a cut. I don't want anybody calling Montana and telling him that I was ripped, because it's not. But Joe Montana, on a day that Steve Young's going to start because Montana's hurt, and Montana is still trying to soak up all the oxygen with all the pregame interviews. Now, not, I mean, he could turn them down, but that's not going to happen. And the, the press wanting to talk to Montana was quite natural. He wasn't seeking them out. But it was a way to keep the light shining on him. He wanted the job back. It's just the way it is. It wasn't mean. It wasn't cruel. It's just the nature of competition. And my fear is we're not teaching competition. We're shielding people from it. For the longest time, children, you know, nobody's allowed to win anything, participation trophies. But when you get to real life, and if you really want to amount to something, if you, when, you, when you get whatever line of work you're in, as you get to the top of that line of work, there are very few people there. That's why the phrase rarefied air. Uh, and it is cutthroat. The competition is cutthroat, even among best friends. And you have to be able, by virtue of experience, to be able to deal with it. You're not going to win every outing. You're not, and I don't mean game. You're not going to beat everybody out for the top job. And there's all gonna, sometimes you're going to be the best, but you're not going to get the gig because there are other factors. People making a decision might like somebody more than they like you. It's vicious. And you have to be totally singularly focused on yourself. Not in a bad way. You have to believe in yourself. You have to believe there's a reason you're trying to pursue the highest levels you can go. And that's because you can do it, and you can do it well, and you can do it better than anybody else. The minute you carve out that, that life for yourself, you are making enemies. Because a lot of people are going to be fighting for the same thing, and they're going to try to be beating you out and denying you uh, what you want. You're going to be doing the same thing to them. There are going to be others who just resent you for thinking you're that good. They're going to resent you for even having the audacity to try to climb that high. I mean, folks, it is vicious out there. It's also very healthy. All of these things are things that successful people have to go through in order not just to reach the pinnacle, but then to stay there. Because I'm going to tell you, getting there while fraught with stress 
and competition and never-ending assaults. Getting there is not even half as hard as staying. Because once you get there or close to it, everybody wants what you have. And there's really, it's much easier to go south than north when you're at the top. And so that's why I have this philosophy about limitations. It's easy to be a victim. Look how easy the Democrat Party has made almost half this country think they're victims of something. And what happens to you when you're a victim? Well, when you're a victim, you automatically have a built-in excuse for failure. When you are a victim, it's always somebody else's fault. When you're a victim, success is not possible. When you are a victim of something, you are acknowledging that you are as far as you're going to get and you can't get any further because there are more powerful forces arrayed against you than the force of yourself against it. So if you think, for example, that, well, let's say you, you, you want to do a job and you want to be really, you want to rise really high in that career, but where you live, that job doesn't exist. Your town's too small. Or maybe the business is in your town, but even if you reach the pinnacle there, it's not, because it's a small town, it's, it's not nearly as high as you could go. If you're unwilling to move, well, that's all on you. That's a limitation you're placing on yourself. Now, that's fine. If that's, if that's what makes you happy, I'm not criticizing things. I'm just pointing out that it's not usually anybody else's fault when you don't get what you want. Sometimes it is. There's exceptions to everything, but it's usually the self-limitations that we attach to, uh, to ourselves. I wanted to be a success in radio. There was no way it was ever going to happen if I stayed where I was born. It was not possible. Nothing against where I was born, nothing against the people there. It just wasn't possible. I knew when I was 15 that I was going to have to leave if I was serious about what I was doing. And back then, I knew that, that every climb, every rung up the ladder was going to involve another move. And it did. And it, I wanted it badly. I remained dedicated to my desires. And it's what enabled me to come back after being fired seven or eight times, whatever it was, only twice for legitimate insubordination. Not just the doctor of democracy, not just America's anchor man. He was America's storyteller. He was. Rush was inducted into the uh, Hall of Fame, Radio Hall of Fame. Met Paul Harvey. He was impressed by Paul Harvey's career and kindness. And then a woman decided that as a fellow broadcaster, she'd try to hurt Rush on the night that he was inducted. A swing and a miss. Rusty Franklinton, North Carolina. Great to have you with us on the EIB Network. Hello. Rush, thanks for taking my call, and congratulations on 32 years. Thank you, sir. Um, I've always wanted to ask you this. Did you ever meet Paul Harvey? And if you did, what was your takeaways? Oh, sure. I met, I met, there's a funny, actually, it's a great, it's a good story. Uh, when, when I, the first time I met Paul Harvey, okay was at the Chicago Radio Hall of Fame induction ceremony where I was being inducted. And it was a big night. I had a lot of family there. They came up from Cape Girardeau. This was in Chicago. Bruce Dumont, 
was was running the uh, National Radio Hall of Fame. And uh, the, the the crew from the NPR Morning Edition, uh, they were getting in that year. Larry King was the MC. They broadcast this thing worldwide uh, because I was getting in. I was the most famous inductee. And Paul Harvey was there. He was instrumental. He was one of the key figures in the in the Radio Hall of Fame. And he lived in Chicago, of course. So I... Um, this is one of the one of the one of the instances of naivete that that bit me in the back. I was told that uh, Dumont said, "Hey, you know, Sally Jesse Raphael wants to be the one to induct us." What? Yeah, Sally Jesse Raphael. And this was this was the night of the induction. I said, "Well, okay, I, what could go wrong?" <laughs> what went wrong? With she stood up there and she said, I don't think this man should be inducted in the Hall of Fame. He calls women like me femme Nazis. And I'm thinking, oh, for crying out loud, this is the only time I'm going to get inducted in the Radio Hall of Fame. And this B.I. has to get up there and do this. When mom's in the audience and my brother's in the audience, my brother is steaming. And so was Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey was livid. Now, Sally Jesse Raphael, who's about 5'2", when she's not wearing those rockabilly high heels, she's just beaming at me. I just totally ignored her, and I went up there and I thanked everybody, the American people, and gave my remarks and so forth. And when it was over, uh, I met Paul Harvey, and, and he shared with me that he was very disappointed in what had happened and so forth and and what what she had done and on the following set it was that was a ceremony that took place i think it was a saturday night uh in chicago and it was i think the following saturday on paul harvey's saturday show and i i think it i think his saturday broadcast was like a 15 or 20 minute thing but he did a he devoted, I think, over half of that broadcast to me being inducted in the Hall of Fame. And it was it was it was so great. It was he was um, well, I just remember the one line. There's nobody who does what Rush Limbaugh does, and so there's nobody ever who can do it better. And he was he was effusive in his praise. And part of the reason was he, he felt it necessary to defend the Hall of Fame. Nobody was was happy with what Raphael did. She she had she had duped everybody. And Bruce Dumont was um, apologizing. The NPR people loved it. Larry King loved it, but but the uh, half the other crowd uh, didn't. And I remember flying home, dropping my family back in Cape Girardeau, and I was still ticked off on the airplane. And my mother. What are you? What are you so upset? You just got in the hall of yeah. Look how it happened. You could only do this one time, Mom. I mean, I can't go in. I can't get inducted next year the right way. No, you should be proud. That's never happened to anybody before. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> probably true. <laughs> Nobody's probably better been inducted by somebody protesting their induction. Um, Although I think Marlon Brando came close to the Academy Awards one year. I don't know. But but she always had a unique way of – a unique, positive way at uh, looking at things. So we get, look, I don't, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know where she is. We, we – look, you know, uh, my TV show was taped in the same building, in the same floor that her stupid show was taped on. 
And there was somebody on her staff. I still don't know. You may know who it was. There was somebody on her staff who surreptitiously, privately and secretly, got us a photo of Sally Jesse Raphael without any makeup. And now I don't don't I don't want any of you ladies getting upset with me here. This came in over the transom. And I know it's not it's not polite to comment on such things, but I don't think I have ever seen in a single human being a starker contrast between makeup and no makeup as was exhibited by that in that picture of Sally Jesse Raphael. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think I think that picture ended up in a television. I think it, it a switcher made a mistake and that picture was up there for like ten seconds. A mistake before we realized it. And yeah, it has, uh, it's strange the way things uh, things work out. It is Todd Herman celebrating with you the life of our friend Rush Limbaugh. And there's so much more in this last hour that Team EIB has put together for you. A lot of Rush's voice to follow on the EIB Network. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast. And this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go, like, how do I detach from my this idea of, what do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. We're saying thank you to our friend Rush Limbaugh and 
we're recognizing that the Lord has called him home. And he spoke to us about his faith. He left a gift, a terrific gift. Ideological demoralization has left our young people with an incapable of understanding, let alone defending, what the United States of America means. And so, Rush Limbaugh became an author again, this time for children. Folks, I, uh, I, I have to... I have to tell you, we are, with uh, with my upcoming book, Rush Revere and the Brave Pilgrims, Time Travel Adventures with Exceptional Americans. I announced this book on Thursday. The book hits on October 29th. It has been number one everything Amazon since. It still is. I don't know if this is unprecedented or not, Maybe the announcement of Harry Potter books stays at number one pre-order. This book's pre-orders are higher than sales of other books. It's it's astounding. I want to a little... My first book, The Way Things Ought to Be, a publisher, which was the the same publisher, Stamen und Schuster. And they threw a book party for me at, at uh, the famous New York Eatery 21. And I was meeting people in the publishing industry that I didn't know, and they didn't know me. And I've been in New York four years, and I was still trying to get my feet wet in that market and city and so forth. And so a guy from um, Time Life, I wish I could remember, he was ranking very ranking senior executive, been there a long time, white-haired guy, came up to me and asked me how it felt. Because at the time of the book party, the, the, the sales had already taken off, and it was number one on the New York Times list. That book stayed at number one for 24 weeks. This guy comes up to me and asks me how I felt about it, and I said, I'm humbled. He says, you're what? I, I said, I'm humbled. You've got a book at the top of the Times list that you're humbled? And he really was incredulous. I mean, almost just this side of angry incredulous. I said, yeah, I'm humbled. He said, what what do you mean by that? He hadn't the slightest idea what I was talking about. I said, well, I'm, this is my first book. It's, this is something I never thought I would do in my entire life imagining whatever a success track would be if I ever got on one in radio. I never thought it would include writing a book. And the fact that people are buying it, I'm deeply appreciative. I'm, I'm totally humbled by it. And he did not understand that. I, I couldn't make him under. He thought, I'm a, he thought I was a nut. And I said, well, how, how should I feel? He said, well, you ought to feel on top of the world. Great. Well, I do. But, I mean, I'm, I'm really humbled by it. He didn't understand how I could uh, understand the, the idea of appreciating people who were buying it didn't didn't you know and I should have that should have been a big red flag to me because I mean the guy's obviously New York publishing world he's a leftist in his politics that should have been a huge learning experience. It wasn't, I mean, it was at the time, but it it wasn't until sometime later that I actually realized what that meant. 
in terms of the way those people look at their audiences. Remember, they're news people, and their audiences don't know what they're talking about, don't know what they're doing. I mean, news audiences, Time Life guy, news audiences, let them complain. And the people in the news business will tell them, it's the only business where the customer is always wrong. It's, well, you don't understand what we do. Well, you're not quite smart enough to understand. And I, have to t- I feel the same way. I am just, I'm overwhelmingly humbled by this. It's inexplicable how we, uh, how we feel here. Now, we did slip to number two at Barnes & Noble, but we'll fix that today. And what else we've done here, we have uh, we've posted on my Facebook page a short little video, a behind-the-scenes video, 40 seconds is what it is, 39 seconds, of, the, of a portion of the recording session to do the audio version of the book, which uh, a couple of weeks ago did that, over three consecutive nights. And the uh, the video is actually taken from the control room. What you see in the upper right hand of the video frame is me on a TV monitor, the video ditto cam, and the back of the broadcast engineer's head, Brian Johnson, uh, which is as close to fame as Brian says he wants to get. And so it was taken from the control room, and it's just a little bit behind the scenes. And we've got some more that we might post. But the audio version, that, that, that too, is, is doing phenomenally well in its own category in pre-orders. And the, the, the audio version, I've never done anything like this. You know, the audio version was a real challenge. I, I, I still love professional challenges, folks. I still get jazzed by, by doing something I haven't done. And this, I mean, I'd read my other two books, but, but nothing like that. I mean, this is a dramatic reading. Very many voice inflections, some impersonations, some accents, storytelling. And it was a real challenge. I had not done it before. And I'm really proud of it because it's, it's, it's some of the, uh, in my mind, some of the best work I've done, the audio version of this, uh, of this book. So anyway, by, the, by this time, you know the drill. Uh, and, and I can't do the feedback we continue to get from people. It's thrilled. People, I guess the number one thing we're hearing, it's about time. People wanted me to do something beside the radio program. And a lot of them wanted me to do a book. And it just didn't, it didn't excite me. And if I'm not excited, I'm not going to do it. And, and then Catherine said, look, why don't you do a book for kids? That's something I had not thought of. And start squaring history. You know it's not being taught properly. It's one of your big bugaboos. And so here we go. This is it. The true story of the pilgrims. The true story of Thanksgiving. Although there's much more in it than just the real story of Thanksgiving. I've seen some critics pan that. Our press coverage has been awesome, actually. There's nothing yet to criticize other than me. But there hasn't been any of that. There's, I mean, it's some snarky comments on blogs. But the uh, drive-by media been pretty fair, accurate in their reporting of the existence of the of the book, but I really, I'm humbled by it. I, I don't find that odd. This guy at Time Life thought that was the oddest thing. You know what I mean, Don, when I say I'm humbled by it? This guy could not understand that. Of all things to feel, that's the last thing. I mean, he walked away shaking his head. Not quite, uh, not quite getting it. So, you know, we created this vehicle here, folks, that is so much fun. We we have we brought to life the icon, 
from our iced tea company, twoifbytea.com, old Rush Revere, who is me, dressed up as Paul Revere. And he's got this smart aleck talking horse that can time travel. Well, once you do that, boy, you can go anywhere. And that's Rush Revere and the Horse Liberty can go anywhere in American history, and we're going to. And we can take students with us, and we've got smartphones. We can record what happens in history, bring it back to the classroom and show the students on a projector using AirPlay technology. Oh, folks, I mean, it's, it, this has been, it's, it's, it's a rush. It's, uh, it's huge fun. And I just look, I, I couldn't start the program today without, once again, uh, telling you how appreciative I am and humbled I am. That you have, uh, I mean, five days. Is it Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday? Yep, five days. And I know that it's uh, it's going to continue. And they, you know, it's written for ten to thirteen year olds, but it's for everybody, grandparents and parents to give, read with, uh, homeschoolers. I mean, it's just it's for everybody, and it is. You know, it was so much fun because it's just it's. It, it's fun to have a chance to correct what's happening in public education today, just as the American left, as typified by the president, sadly, doesn't think much of this country the way it was founded. That's the way this country is being taught, sadly. You know it as well as I do. And to have an opportunity to correct that and do the real story of this country, because it's a great story, and it is a once-in-a-lifetime-of-the-planet story, this country. It really is exceptional. And I have a chance to explain that uh, and have a shot at these young skulls full of mush with their parents and grandparents. There's a... It's just a... It fills the bill when uh, you ask yourself, "What, what else can I do? And for me, this is fabulous. And the book is a way of teaching what's not being taught. We have an amazing free country here, founded by people that um, had an unwavering spirit and determination to triumph. And they had hardships and they had obstacles that we try to bring to life that people today don't have. We have our own, but not the kind they had. Nowhere near it. And you got people thinking that exceptional Americans are rare. Ordinary people doing extraordinary things is rare. It's not. It's not rare. It's it's it's, it's why this country is is what it is. People coming from nothing to make the most of their lives. This is the one place on earth where that can happen. The one place on earth where dreams are promoted and can come true. And so that's all of this. This book and and those which follow come under that umbrella. And I, I thank you again. I really do. And I want to just let you know there's a little video posted at our Facebook page, and I think that links back to the homepage, and it's also at 2FIT.com. If not, it will be, but it's all over there. A little video of a behind-the-scenes recording session for the audio version. So I checked the email during the break, and uh, a couple of more which, uh, which said, Rush, this, uh, the, the pre-order success of your book shows how how much your revered audience loves you, folks. That's not that, that. That's not what this is about. I don't think I. And this is what I mean by makes me feel humble. The greatest thing about this is that I. I think this is we're all on a team here, family. This is Team Rush, 
showing that there are a lot of Americans who still love this country. People running out, making this book number one pre-order on Amazon and all these places. This is just people wanting to be heard. They have not given up on this country. They don't buy into what's happening to this country. This is their way of making a statement. It isn't about me. It really isn't. It's an opportunity. This is this is this is America, a vast majority of this country showing that they still love this country and that they care about what's being taught to young people. That's what it really means when you get down to it. As serious as Rush can be, there was that playful side of him. He's telling the truth when he says he's having more fun than a human being should be allowed to have. He really is. Imagine every day going into work and doing what you love doing, all while making other people love doing what they do, being a compassionate patriot, one who loves their country, one who loves others. My dad always said, be humble and be loved. Now I know where he learned that from, because he listened to Rush for years before I was. Thanks, Dad. He's been my daily voice of truth. I always loved it when my wife would say, you know what? He's right. For the first few years, I checked to see if he was right. After I just stopped checking. Because he was. He was the voice of truth. And Rush shared so much with us. Uh, obviously, he chose to decide to share his faith in uh, God Almighty. Also, his faith in, faith in this team. Um, we talked earlier about the fact that there are small businesses that became large because of this program and Rush's talents. You select comfort. It's simply safe. Snapple. LifeLock, Hotwire, Mandarin USA, Carbonite, it became iDrive, LegalZoom, Citrix, and Regis Offices. The, 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 this happened because of this team. And we spoke earlier about a lot of members of the team. And I want you to hear a soundbite that's put together by a woman named Cookie. And you've heard Rush mention Cookie on the air and Coco on the air and, of course, the other members of the team we mentioned earlier. Um, you heard a sound montage at the beginning of the show where people like President Trump and Glenn Beck and Sean Hannity and others were praising our friend Rush as he has uh, gone to the Lord. And that, that takes hours to do overnight. Um, Cookie spends hours finding these sound bites to make the program what it has been all these years. And you find that on the website that, that Coco runs uh, and helps run. And there's, there's teams of people that do this. Uh, Greg Chapin, Joe and Greg do this as well. So this is something that you are going to hear for the first time. This is country music star John Rich wanted to share with you a story of a $100,000 anonymous charitable donation that actually came from our rush. People don't necessarily know that side of him, which is why I put that tweet out. I was more of an acquaintance with him. But when I was on Celebrity Apprentice, you know, playing for St. Jude Children's Hospital and my goal was to try to eclipse a million dollars in funds raised. So I called a lot of different people and I reached out to Rush. And I said, would you mind making some kind of a donation to add to my total? I'm trying to get past a million dollars. <laughs> he said, I'll send you a donation, but you can't ever tell Trump I made a donation. Don't say it on television. Don't tell anybody. It's just anonymous. He, he said, I believe that's the way charity should be. I said, you got it. I didn't know how much he was going to send until it showed up. And I see a six-figure check <laughs> to St. Jude Children's Hospital. Man, what an incredible moment that was. Yeah, I happen to know some of those stories. And they're not mine to tell, but I will tell you, they were anonymous. 
And they weren't always the big organizations. Sometimes they were just the people. Friends of friends, family members of staff. They're not my stories to tell. But I hope one day people decide to tell them. Because that side of Rush is is known within the family. Maybe that's where it should stay. Cookie also grabbed something from the Ingram angle. This is Laura Ingram, and she's speaking with former Vice President Mike Pence, who himself was a radio talk show host. He spoke here about Rush's incredible talent. Radio, you have to you have to show heart, and mm. I, I actually think that was the he had an immense uh, intellect, a capacity to to articulate conservative ideals and American principles like like very few Americans of our time. But he also had heart. I mean, when you listen to somebody every day, as millions of Americans have done for more than thirty years. You get to know them for who they are, and this was a genuinely good man who he had a heart for our country. He loved the American people, and 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 I think that spirit of fun was all reflected in a sense you had listening to him that he loved the people that he was talking to. He believed in the boundless potential of of every American, and I really do believe that. The best days for America are yet to come, and and when they come, we're we're going to build that that boundless future on a foundation that Rush Limbaugh helped to pour. Right? There'll never be another Rush Limbaugh. No, there can't be. Um, you've heard today on the program Rush explain his philosophy of success to not conform, not be a conformist, to never listen to people who didn't, so they tell you you can't. Um, the difficulty of staying on top, the importance of asking people, how did you do it? The importance of self-confidence, the importance of faith. And you've heard from family members and, 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 and extended friends of the family, the importance of family, the, the focus on that. And then, of course, the recognition that with freedom comes responsibility. And in my mind, when Rush communicated to us as he came back from, from rehab, it was the most stellar moment of broadcasting I've ever heard as he took responsibility for a mistake he made. He taught so much at that moment. And maybe that's, maybe that's what I'll miss most of all, the combination of freedom and responsibility. Much more rush as we continue. You know, I think one of the reasons that uh, people get confused and have hatred for rush when they've maybe never listened to him as they think, oh, look, the luck, the luck, the fortuitousness. And they don't know the story of the hard work. They just don't. And the double shifts for a year, six hours of live radio. Everybody starts somewhere. Uh, six hours of live radio every day. Everybody starts somewhere. All of us do. And, folks, here is Rush Limbaugh with one of those <laughs> radio names, Jeff Christie. Now, I said at the beginning, we don't have a lot of audio from way back. We've done all that at the 10th anniversary, the 20th anniversary, even some of the the 25th. But we do have some things here that I don't think that we've aired. And if we have aired them, it's been so long ago that, that I don't even remember. And some of them are actually kind of instructive in explaining how we got here because they go back to 1989, which was a year after this program had started. 
But grab audio soundbite number one. This one I have not heard. Now, what this is, Cookie found a... She's put together a montage of me when I was a disc jockey in suburban Pittsburgh, McKeesport, Pennsylvania. This is 1971. I was 20. And this was my first job away from home. And I, I remember I moved there in uh, in February of 1971, arrived in the middle of a blizzard with the windshield wipers on my 1969 Pontiac Le Mans having shut down. And the last 30 miles into town were harrowing. But there was no way I was going to stop. I was going to get there. I don't know how I did it without running into something, but I got there. Now, anybody who does what what I do here will tell you they don't they don't like looking at years old stuff it's embarrassing like Sean Hannity has told me he does, he cannot stand watching tapes of the old Hannity and Combs show he can't believe he looks so nerdy and and, and I it's the same thing here I I I don't watch myself on TV ever even 2 hours after it's done and listening to old radio tapes it's painful it, it really is painful. You know what I just about the top of the hour break when, when um, some people have said, and by the I don't take this personally. Don't misunderstand. These people that made this comment to me, we're not trying to be offensive. Uh, everybody wants to help. I have found that over the years. Friends, acquaintances, everybody wants to help. And uh, people have said everything. My show's never been better. You know, I kind of liked it a little bit better way back when there was a lot more production value in it. You ever thought about going back to that? I said, yeah, I have. And in fact, I've even done it a couple. I've gone back and done some of those old updates, and I feel 10 years old again. I, it, it, that, was, that was appropriate for who I was then, but it just doesn't feel appropriate, except to do it as a greatest hits kind of thing. But to, to start sneaking that stuff back in as part of the regular ingredients of the program, believe me, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't fit. And the reason for that is, is really it, it's quite simple. And it's back to this note that I got from a friend last night. Do you do you know, and again, I, I do not know. I don't stop to think about things like this. Because honestly, I'm too busy thinking about the next day. I don't know how else to say this. But I don't reflect. Before I got to this point, I thought that I would. When I gazed around at other successful people in any field, be they athletes or uh, business people. I, I I wondered, what are their lives like? What do they do? Do they go home at night and think about all they've done? Do they just sit alone and think about what they've done and, and, and feel really good about it? And I eventually got a chance to ask that question to a lot of people. And I can I tell you the honest truth is that not a one of them have said yes. They've all said, never occurred to me. Um, and it doesn't occur to me either because the next day is too important. If you take what you do seriously, and I do, and when I talk about meeting and surpassing all the expectations of you people in the audience, I mean that more than anything. And so I'm always thinking forward and I will beat myself up if I think I've done a lousy show or lousy job, but then I'll console myself by saying there's tomorrow to fix it. So she sends me this note. She says, do you know how few people can say they've had the same ethics, morality, conscience, political core beliefs, connectivity with themselves in their 20s, through their 40s, and into their 60s, into their best years? 
you know how few people can say that. <clears throat> I, I don't think about it. I have had friends of mine say in the recent past, the last five or six years, why don't you do something else? What else do you have left to prove? I mean, how many times can you say what you think? For crying out, these are all people who have stopped doing what they were doing when I met them and either not doing anything or trying to do something new. Why, why don't you just, God, you could do anything. Why don't you do it? Because I love what I do. I absolutely love it. There's nothing else I want to do. There's nothing, I, I, I'm not sitting around thinking, what else could I do? If it do anything else, it would be an add-on to this with this remaining as the foundation. But to drop this and do something, that would never even occur to me. Just like changing my core beliefs would never occur to me. Changing my beliefs of what I consider important and hold, it would never occur to me. And uh, so in that sense, uh, the note goes on that this is why you're perceived as reliable. But I don't, I don't actively think about that. I just try to be who I am day to day. And I have an opportunity to do it in public. So anyway, we get these old tapes, old examples, and they're always embarrassing. But at the time thought I was hot stuff. I mean, at any time, this Pittsburgh DJ stuff or 1992 during the Clinton years, thought it was hot stuff. Go back and listen to some of it now. I, honestly, some of it is good. I'll admit some of it. I go, yeah, that's, but a lot of it, oh, gee. But it's true, I think, of anybody. But I look at pictures of themselves from the past or have audio or video reminders of themselves in the past. And not just appearance, but uh maturity level and all that. So I play this with some trepidation. I haven't heard it. I vaguely remember it. Well, no, I don't vaguely. I remember this like it was yesterday, too. So again, this is at a station that was called WIXZ, Wixy. The format was oldies called Salted, er, Solid Rock and Gold. I called it Salted Rotten Mold after having to play the same 25 oldies for three years. But anyway, Cookie put together a montage, and this is it. Now, WIXZ, the Keysport, continues with much more Wixie 1360 solid rock and gold. Hello, goodbye. It's 7.03 in the morning on Wixie Solid Rock and Gold. For the morning rush hour, sunny and cold today. Radar says a near 0% chance of precipitation. A big hand for Mr. and Mrs. Arnold Paluski celebrating their 25th refrigerator payment today. <laughs> Little off the cuff humor there. Canadian group, which has infiltrated the U.S. of A. back in 1969, Mother Load, and when I died. Wixie 1360, where the hits roll on. Osmond Brothers, get it on. Little hippie lingo there. Currently downtown, it's 19 degrees, again shooting for a high today of 31. This is Mercy. Women's Liberation theme song, Love Can Make You Happy. Mercy. Three chicks from New York City. This is WIXZ McKeesport. Right. Love can make you happy. Women's liberation theme. See, it was under the feminazis even back in 1971. Oh, of course I hit the posts. There was nobody better at hitting the posts. That's talking up the music intro right to where they began singing. That was, of course, I can still do it. 
Absolutely. That's uh, the timing talent. Now, I want to jump forward to, let's see, uh, let's go soundbite four and five. Um, Sacramento, California was the first place in my radio career where I had any kind of success. I spent 10 years in Kansas City prior to that, five in radio and five working for the Kansas City Royals. And in none of that could I honestly say I had any success. And in some of those places, some of those 10 years, I wasn't even viewed as somebody who might be successful. And after five years at the baseball team, and I figured out I'd, I, I just can't stand corporate life. It was too constricting. I'm not enough of a conformist. I don't collaborate. I don't want to collaborate. Those five years at the Royals, I met people I would have never otherwise met, but it, I also learned what I was not good at doing. Uh, and so I ended up back in radio because it's the one thing I was I was happy at doing. And Sacramento, California is where I went. And that was the first time. That was, that's 1988. And I started radio in 1966. 20 years. I was 16 or 15 when I started. I mean, 20 years. It took 20 years to have anything like success. The first time in my whole broadcast career that I had any idea what a success track felt like and looked like. I knew what it didn't look like. <laughs> I knew what it didn't feel like. But I'd never experienced it until... Sacramento, which is why I've always said that my adopted hometown, and uh, it was the first place I had lived outside of my hometown where I actually planted roots and became part of the community rather than just a passing personality, passing through town onto the next town, hoping for the next break. So after I left KFPK to do this program nationally, there was a natural pull to go back there and to express gratitude for all of the people there who had made it possible. So we started the Rush to Excellence Tour, which, if you've seen a Trump rally, it's what the Rush to Excellence Tour was. When this program started, nobody knew who I was, and nobody thought syndicated radio in the daytime had a prayer. A bunch of people had tried it, moderate success, and I was just the next one. And if it didn't work, nobody would think anything of it other than nice try. I figured it would set me up for a better job later if it didn't work, because it never had. People thought you had to be local, local, local in the daytime doing radio. I didn't believe that, wanted a chance to show it. So I started the Rush to Excellence Tour. Every time we got a new affiliate, I would go there. I would go for a weekend. I'd, I'd arrive on a Friday night, uh, have dinner with the radio station people, and do a personal appearance on Saturday night and fly back to New York on Sunday. And I did that 48 weekends a year for the first two years to cement a relationship with the stations that took the show and to cement a, a bond with the audience. I was stunned at how many people showed up. I mean, 5,000, if the place held 10,000, that's how many showed up. And I would do an hour and a half, sometimes two hours, uh, with just some notes to remind me things I wanted to say. And that's why when Trump started his rallies, I, I knew exactly what was going on. I, I was able to spot the bond because I had lived it. And I knew exactly uh, what was going to happen with Trump's supporters sticking with him because I had lived it and it happened. Well, one of those Rush to Excellence tours, I was I hell-bent on going back to Sacramento because um, I felt I owed them so much. KFBK, the, the city, Sacramento, the, the, the audience there, the people that live there. And this was in, I don't know what month this was, but uh, I think it was summertime because it was very hot. And I put the, the roof at Arco Arena open during the day for what reason? I don't know. Probably some lib who wanted me. We were videotaping this. 
I said, I show up, you know, three hours before the event, and the roof's on. What do you, what do, you do with the roof? Don't worry, it closes and it cools down real fast. Well, it didn't. But anyway, the place was over 15,000 people uh, in the place. And Clarence Frogman Henry showed up to sing Ain't Got No Home. And the local paper wrote a very caustic piece of Frogman claiming he was clueless, didn't know how he was being used. He, he loved it. His career was being revived. Yeah, the greatest time. But we got a couple of sound bites from that rush to excellence appearance. And it's I think it's cuts four and five, and we have time to squeeze them both in. So here's the first. Six years ago, I was working for the Kansas City Royals. I had been in radio 12 years previous to that. I was working for the Kansas City Royals six years ago. It was the end of five years there. After five years there, I was making $18,000 a year. Now, I don't know what kind of money that sounds like to you. But believe me, in Kansas City, Missouri, at age 32, it's an embarrassment if you take yourself seriously. And I was, I was miserable. I was unhappy. I was aimless. I had given up on radio. I thought I had already failed at that. I'd bombed out as a DJ. All I knew was Donny Osmond's birthday, a couple of other things. And nobody's going to take DJs seriously. It really, I was down in the dumps. I had nowhere to go. I was really without any self-esteem whatsoever. And I talked to some friends and they said, you know, you're blaming the wrong people for this. It's not the royals. It's not your friends. You're sitting there miserable. Why do you put up with it? If you don't like it, do something else. I said, what am I going to do? They said, well, what are you best at? And I said, probably being on the radio. Well, there's your answer. Do what you're best at and you'll at least be happy regardless how well you do it. So I decided to give radio one more chance, and it brought me here. To KFBK Sacramento is actually a, a broadcast consultant who was consulting the station in Kansas City that I really went back to work for after the Royals five years, and uh, he was the one who arranged, this guy's got a chance to be something. So they I actually was hired to replace Morton Downey Jr. got fired for telling a, an ethnic joke. It's his voice that tells me that all is well with the world, and he's going to talk to me for the next three hours. I hated politics. I still do. But when he's talking, it's more than just politics. It's an educational experience. I mean, the amount of work he put into every show just for us, three hours a day, that's love. Because he loves his country as much as he loves us. And all he wanted to do is tell the truth. We miss our friend, Rush. And he always told us his talent was on loan from God. And, and then he told us that that took on a much bigger and different meaning to Rush after he shared with us that, that as our friend put it, he had, he had gone past his expiration date. I want to share with you just a thought. And when we come back, I just want to wrap up this day as we as a family have just been in tears together. And, and it's okay. A lot of people are sending me notes that they're crying. It's okay. We're also laughing, remembering. So I want to just share that thought with you when we come back on the one and only Rush Limbaugh program. Our strong, spirited friend Rush Limbaugh has gone to the Lord. And with some of his last shows, he chose to tell us he accepted the will of God Almighty. And maybe that was his final lesson. We love you, Rush Limbaugh. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts 
of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening.